Sit back, it's time to get groovy. Question, do you remember that movie? Welcome to Remember That Movie. I am the third Alejandro Rosa on IMDb. And I'm Steve Johnston, still not on IMDb. And welcome to our little podcast on the internet, where we ask the age-old question, Hey, do you remember that movie? Excellent. Oh, snap. I just banged my head against the microphone again. It's tradition. <laughs> I do this every episode. <laughs> and I do try to edit these out, but he did such a great introduction that I'm afraid that I'm going to have to keep that bump in. All right. So, <laughs> welcome. Welcome back. It is 2024. We are starting the year. We have lots of things planned for this year, episodes that we want to accomplish, some guests that we're hoping to get on the uh, podcast with us. But let us get past all that, because that's not what people are here for. So, an introduction. Today, tonight, this morning, depending on whatever point in the timeline you're in. We always do the, oh, good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon, or wherever you're listening. We could just condense that into now. Because whenever they're listening, it's going to be now. That's true. Well, then now, we are going to talk about the 1998 City of Angels. Before I get into all the details of the film, let's start with something very basic. Steve, Sir, this was my choice. It was. Had you ever seen this film before? Yes, I had. I remember this film because it was one of the first examples of me being cognizant that marketing departments might be lying to me. Because I remember ads for this movie, previews for this movie, that it was going to be a big thing because it was Nicolas Cage. And I, I want to say that this was round about the time that he kind of hit a high point in his career because I think he had done movies that have just escaped my mind. We had Meg Ryan, who was also at a, a high point in her career. So this was going to be a very good movie. It was going to be interesting. It was going to be engaging. The movie came out and everyone that I knew that saw it, whether I knew them personally or whether it was the critics in the newspaper, said, oh my goodness, that sucked. I did not watch this movie in cinemas when it first came out. It was one that I eventually watched at home, and I do not remember if we rented it or if it just happens to be on TV. And it was more of a curiosity watch, a, is this really as bad as everyone made it out to be, you know, years ago? And there are two questions that I want to ask you. First, I'm assuming you had seen this movie because you had picked it. And secondly, I am very curious as to why you picked this particular film. I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to put a caveat in it, which is that I think our memories frequently are flawed. The reason I say that is because I distinctly remember seeing this film in a movie theater, but I don't know if I saw this in a movie theater or not, or if I just made that up. I have no idea if I saw it in 1998 or if I saw it later and I saw it on VHS, etc. So I'm not 100% sure. All I know about this film is that I did watch it once. It would have been in either the late 90s or the early 2000s. Right. What I will say about this film that came out April 10th, 1998, is that I don't think I liked it when I watched it. And I was like everybody else. I thought, oh, this is going to be something. It looked cool and 
interesting and cinematic, and then I didn't understand or I didn't like it. And so going into rewatching it this time, mm -hmm. my thought was maybe I was too young to understand it. Okay. If I saw it, let's say when it came out, I would have been like 19. Maybe 19-year-old version of me just didn't get it. It has a lot to do with love and relationships and such. Maybe now older me, wiser me, more lived me will be able to pick up the subtle nuances of the film in a way that my idiotic 19-year-old self could not. This was my theory going into the, the rewatching of this film. So we'll see how that went. Okay, for those of you who have never watched this film, we're going to do what we always do, which is we're going to give you the plot. And we're going to try to give you the plot in about 60 seconds. Okay, I wrote something out to kind of help me guide me because I didn't want to mess it up too badly because Steve is really good at doing this off the cuff. I'm good <laughs> at doing a lot of things off the cuff, not a summary, because I like to talk, <laughs> as you can probably guess. There are angels all around us. We can't see them, but they are everywhere. They bring us comfort in challenging times. When the time comes, they guide us when we die. Amongst these angels, we meet Seth, an angel who appears to have become infatuated with a human, Dr. Maggie Rice, a heart surgeon. He breaks the rules and allows her to see him. The relationship blossoms. In the midst of not knowing what to do, Seth meets one of Maggie's patients, Nathaniel Messenger, who tells Seth that he had been an angel who chose to become a human. Seth takes a leap in order to experience the ability to feel and to be with Maggie. No sooner does he become human than he discovers the full spectrum of human emotions, including that of loss, heartache, and recovery. Very nicely yeah. done. All right. So this film was uh, directed by Brad Silberling. This was actually his second feature film. His first was 1995's, starring Christina Ricci, called Casper. Really? Yes. Okay. Yep. There were multiple directors interested in this project, and he was kind of the underdog. But he just kept coming back to the producer saying, I can do this. Let me do this. I want to do this. Do you know who else? It was their second film, Dana Stevens, who's the screenwriter for this film. A film that most of you might know that came out in 2022. She was the uh, screenwriter for The Woman King, which got a lot of great reviews and was an excellent film. Ah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very good. The cinematographer of this film is an Oscar-winning cinematographer, John Seal. You might know him from a few films, Rain Man, for example, Dead Poets Society, Witness, or maybe uh, the film that he won an Oscar for in 1996, The English Patient. This film I did not know this until we started doing this. I definitely did not know this when I watched this back in the 90s or 2000s. It's actually based on a 1987 award-winning German film, whose name I will not attempt to pronounce, but I will instead give the English pronunciation, or the English title, which is Wings of Desire. Which is not the German title at all. Do you Sorry. not tell me what the German title is then? Der Himmel über Berlin which directly translates to the heaven over Berlin or the sky over Berlin, depending on how you translate Himmel. Steve, the real question that everyone's dying to know is, do you speak German? Not anymore. I took German in junior high school. Very nice. Very nice. So I, I, can, I can read it with nearly the right pronunciation, but I couldn't like 
say anything to you. I could not survive if dropped into the middle of a you know, German town. Well, as someone who looks at the statistics of the listeners of this podcast, I will tell you there is a tiny, 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 tiny percentage that listens from Germany. So I will make Steve completely oh. responsible for any German pronunciations moving forward. This film, <laughs> the 1987 film, was directed by, and I think I can say this correctly, Wim Wenders. Unlike the original, which was set in Germany, City of Angels takes place in Los Angeles, California. It's apparently loosely based on the German film. So that's kind of important because a lot of people refer to it as a remake. So who was in this movie? Well, we've kind of hinted at it already. We have Nicolas Cage playing Angel by the name of Seth. He had already gotten his Oscar in 1995 for Leaving Las Vegas, a heartbreaking film. And, and this is probably what you were thinking about, Steve. Right before he did this film, he had done The Rock, Con Air, Face Off. That's right. Yes, the, those were the ones I was thinking of or trying to think of earlier. Yeah, so he had a string of just successful films. He got the Oscar, then he did a bunch of action movies, and now he wanted to go back to drama. So this, was, this script appealed to him. And then, of course, Meg Ryan, who plays Dr. Maggie Smith, she had, by this point, she's already done, you know, When a Man Loves a Woman, IQ, which we have an episode about, French mm -hmm. Kiss, which one day we'll have an episode about, I think, and, and the animated <laughs> film Anastasia, which I think is the project she worked on before she joined this. We have two famous television actors at that time who decided to join the cast. First of all, Messenger, the character, is played by Dennis Franz, very famous for playing in Hill Street Blues from 1985 to 1987, and then, of course, NYPD Blue, which he was in from 1993 to 2005. He received eight Emmy nominations for NYPD Blue. Four of those he won. So he has four Emmys. Little known fact, he retired immediately following NYPD Blue ending. He just went off into uh, acting retirement. City of Angels? That's his most recent film credit. He didn't do any more movies after this one. Like I think he just did NYPD Blue. And then when that was over, he said it was too much like a job at that point. He loved the creative process, but he wanted to just spend time with his family. And that's apparently what he's been doing for the last 20-some years. So there you Fantastic. go. Fantastic. Yeah, that's Dennis Franz, who I absolutely loved in this film. And we'll get to that. And the other one is uh, Cashel. It's Cashel, right? Is that how we say pronounce it? Cassiel. Is it Cassiel? All right. Cassiel. Played by the amazing, the wonderful Andre Brower. Fun facts on Andre Brower. He earned a scholarship to go to Stanford, where he started in engineering and ended up in acting, and then went to Juilliard. While Dennis Franz was doing NYPD Blue, Andre Brower was famous for doing Homicide, Life on the Street, which went on from 1993 to 1999. He received a total of 11 Emmy nominations. He won two one for Homicide, and one for a very short-lived show called Thief. Some people might not know him from their shows. They might know him for a more recent show, whereas where he played the incredible, hilarious Captain Holt on Brooklyn Nine-Nine from 2013 to 2021. He received four nominations for that role. Uh, unfortunately, Andre Brower passed away in December of 2023, just last month. So both Dennis Franz and Andre Brower were doing their big TV stuff, and they just took a, a mini break at some point in there to do this film. 
We have Robin Bartlett, who plays Susan, very famous for playing Debbie on Mad About You. Colin, oh, how do I say his name? Oh no, I can't read my own writing. <laughs> is it, is it uh, Colm Fiore? Fiore, Fiore, thank you. A very famous Canadian stage and screen actor. More famously, you would know him, not more famously, that doesn't make any sense. Recently, you would know him because he played Reginald Hargraves in The Umbrella Academy. Ah, That's cool. him under some significant makeup. <laughs> One actor that I'm going to point out, which is so famous in the things that she did, and she has five seconds of screen time in this film. Okay, now, if there was any theater buffs out there, hold on to your seats, because here we go. Joanna Merlin played Teresa Messenger, Nathaniel's wife. Joanna Merlin was quite the performer. She studied under Michael Chekhov the famous acting teacher who was Anton Chekhov's nephew. She acted on Broadway with Laurence Olivier. In the movie Fame, she's the dance teacher. She was also a famous casting director, one of Stephen Sondheim's main casting directors. She was the casting director for Company, Follies, Sweeney Todd, Evita, and yeah, Into the Woods. She cast two films that are going to seem completely polar opposites, but I love the fact that these are two of her main film credits. Big Trouble in Little China... <laughs> okay. okay. And uh, the Academy Award winning film The Last Emperor, which ended up winning uh, Best Picture. I think it won like eight uh, Oscars that year. This film was produced by Charles Roven and Dawn Steele. Dawn Steele was actually one of the first women to run a major Hollywood studio and in the process created opportunities for women in the entertainment industry by hiring them as executives, producers, directors, marketing, everything. She actually passed away during the making of this film. Which is why at the end of the film, it says, oh, for Dawn. Not to be a downer, but just wanted to throw that in there because I thought it was cool because she was a cool lady. And I always like pointing out cool ladies. All right. So this is our film. This is City of Angels. Now, how can we describe this? The angels don't look like the angels that we imagine angels looking like. Not the traditional ones. Yeah. No. There's no wings. Number one. Let's just clear that up. No wings. They wear black. And long black trench coats, almost matrixy. Yes. And they stand around a lot. Like I said, the whole concept here is that there are angels everywhere. But the visual of that is a lot of people in black standing around staring at other people. Yes. Which can be a little unnerving. And we'll get to that. <laughs> but let's start with the very simple. Steve, what did you think of the opening? This opening scene was one that I remembered from my first viewing. And my goodness, does it hit differently now that I'm a dad. Without giving too much away, this was the most emotionally devastating scene of the entire movie. <laughs> the start of this movie is a girl having a fever, a young girl, mom freaking out, calling 911, trying to get her fever down, etc., being sent to the hospital, and then dying while we watch. Yep. I did not remember the beginning of this film at all. I was not prepared. I had forgotten that it starts this way. I just remembered this scene that, oh, there, there is this shot of the young girl dying and sort of the introduction as to how the angels operate in that we see the person dying and then all of a sudden they are standing next to the angel who is going to guide them onto the next step or yeah. whatever is beyond. Yeah. And they actually watch themselves either in the process of dying or they, they see that, oh, I have died. That is my lifeless body. And then we move on from there. And 
when you have that and it's a how old would you say the girl was maybe like eight or nine at most, at most. something like that yeah. we know each other we know that we cry at the drop of a hat anytime there is something you know big emotionally i had to pause the movie to wipe the tears off of my face during that opening scene it's like oh i remember this now i did not cry but it was honestly because i was over so overwhelmed that i was like oh okay. no, no 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 please stop please stop don't do this don't you start this movie with a dead <laughs> child i'm going to be so angry the biggest heartache and the heartbreak of it is not even just that the child dies of course that's terrible the biggest heartbreak is that then you hear mom realize that <laughs> yes. the child has died and at that point i was ready to throw the laptop across the room i was like no yeah. screw you movie hey dana unnecessary that sucked <laughs> why not grandpa seriously go with a little girl to start your movie what's wrong with you i don't think that was the best way to start the film simply because from that point forward yeah. i was on edge anytime someone noticed an angel or an angel approached a person there is a very brief scene a ways down in the film that just had me sit up like edge of my seat going no 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 <laughs> that's when we have a shot of cassiel sitting on some steps and there is a young boy being pulled up the steps by his mom in a stroller. And the boy looks over at Cassiel and Cassiel smiles back at him. And I was going, no, don't you do no, it. <laughs> no, no. Thankfully, we cut away from that and we never learn what became of that boy. In my head, he is fine. Everything is fine. It's all good. The problem that I have with this presentation of <laughs> these angelic beings is that they're just odd it's odd people walking around dressed in black just standing there staring at people over people's shoulders it was hard to kind of process because like you said are you an angel of death are you an angel of life what are you doing i can't trust you now because you just killed a little girl what are you people doing you're just wandering about one of the things that also confused me about how the angels operated is that in that opening scene seth touches the girl's hands before she dies and then in one of the next scenes in which there are just angels about everyday los angeles we see some of them almost hug people yes like put their hands on their shoulders or in a couple of cases like put their head on their shoulders and again part of me was thinking what is the lore here are all of these people going to die right there was the stick-up scene in the convenience store yes or in the the bodega in which Cassiel and Seth approach the store clerk and the gunman, and both of them give these other two characters just sort of hugs from behind, hands on the shoulders, lean in. Which we think is to calm both of them to an extent. I wasn't sure at that point. I know, you're Again, never sure. <laughs> thinking back to that, I was thinking back to that first scene going, oh my goodness, these two characters whom we've just met and are you know, bit parts, they're both going to die. Oh wait, they didn't. Okay. It wasn't until a later scene in which Seth touches Messenger's chest and you see him physically sort of relax as though a weight has been lifted off of his chest that I started to put together that, ah, okay, there are different touches depending on what they're trying to do. Yeah, we can agree that the messaging about what these angels are and what their intentions are are very confusing. Yes. One of the things that the film talks about is the fact that the angels do not know how to feel. 
They don't feel. They have no senses as you and I would know them. So they have no sense of touch. They have no sense of taste. Uh, no sense of smell, I assume, as well. So that is kind of weird and fascinating because they're not like joyous creatures. They're not like evil creatures, but they're very blank a lot of the time. They appear to be very blank. And so it's just odd. And a lot of the times they're just leaning over people, sometimes just staring at people. And you're like, okay. And I think this happens a lot with Seth. At times it feels very voyeuristic. Oh, yes. And not in a good way. <laughs> not that voyeurism is a good thing. But I'm just saying, like, it's like, this feels like you guys are being weird most of the time. I think sometimes you're helping, but the rest of the time it just feels like you guys are loitering everywhere. I very much got the sense that there was a lot of thought put into the angels, how they operate, their traditions, their customs, and it's just never fully explained over the course of the movie. We get enough to piece together different little ideas, but going back to the the, the voyeurism thing that you mentioned earlier, it does not help that every now and then they will just meet up in some random location and discuss notes about what they observed during <laughs> the day. And the question that kept running through my mind was, why? What is all of this in service of? Are they reporting back to God in some way, shape, or form? Is this just, why are they doing this? The ferrying people into the afterlife, that made sense. But the whole, like, just wandering around, looking over people's shoulders, getting very, very close to people's faces. The angels apparently love hanging out in the library. Okay, and so when we get to see the library, which is the San Francisco Public Library, apparently, it's a lot of people dressed in black leaning over people who are reading, or staring at people who are reading, or just standing nearby people who are reading. Why? I don't get it. I originally thought that perhaps angels being incorporeal and unseeable, that they were unable to interact with books or physical objects, and that this is how they experience literature, yes. by listening in on people reading it. But then later in the movie, we do see Seth interacting with physical objects while he's still angelic, so... He puts a book next to Maggie's bed from the library. What? What are the rules here? I don't understand the rules. <laughs> the rules are the angels can do whatever they want, but they don't. And, and so, of course, we have this story of Seth and Maggie. Maggie being a uh, cardiac surgeon, and he kind of getting a little infatuated with her. Weird scene. It's the one where it, there, somebody's dying, and he's there, and she's just working her pants off trying to get this guy to live. And she looks over... And of course, because he's doing his leering and in the middle of everything, she turns and it looks like she's looking right at him. And he's like, oh my God, she's looking at me? Can she see me? Even though there's literally a man behind him that she's looking at because he's invisible. You're invisible, Seth. No, she can't see you. Did you happen to look behind you, Seth? There was a guy she was talking to two <laughs> seconds ago. And that's part of his whole, like, I think, you know, there's something here. There's a connection between us or whatever. And it's like, no... And of course, uh, she loses the patient and he just feels for her and then he just can't stop himself. And then we have Mr. Nathaniel Messenger, who is another patient who uh, clearly Seth is watching Nathaniel and then for some reason makes himself visible so that when she's walking by, she sees him watching Nathaniel, mm -hmm. which makes no yep. sense, by the way. Zero sense. 
he was visible because he wanted her to see him at that point. And then comes what I think is supposed to be a romantic line. And again, to quote Steve, never trying to yuck anyone's yum. She says, hey, like, what are you doing, sir? Whatever. Who are you visiting? And what does he say? You. And I was like, call security. Because yeah. you don't know the man dressed in black who's standing in the dark hallway in a hospital who doesn't know anybody. It's not supposed to be there after hours. And he just said, I'm here to see you. <laughs> Run, press a badge, scream, call someone, get out of there. And then she, she has a whole conversation with him. And I'm like, no, you back away slowly. Oh, that's really nice. Oh, hang on. I have to make a phone call. Bye. And that's just uh. the beginning of what I can only say is, and again, I apologize, folks, if you love this film, I'm not trying to ruin it. The creep factor for me in this film. Shall we discuss the bath scene? Oh, if, if we must. Because as you realize, these angels are everywhere and can be at any given moment. And we usually just see them walking around near people or whatever. But at some point, she is enjoying a good bath and one of the couple of product placements in this film, a good rolling rock beer. <laughs> While he is looking sort of tortured, even though he can't feel anything. But I think he's tortured because he can't feel anything and because she's in the bath and he's just sitting there kind of like Edward Cullen like he's just there. And you're like, hey, that's creepy, man. <laughs> so many of the angel scenes feel that way to me. It's like, mm -hmm. I, I, I know I'm supposed to kind of empathize with these creatures who are trying to do good, but I, I'm having a hard time. What about you? What was your, what, what do you think? Bath scene. How about that? I didn't have notes on the bath scene in particular, but. No, because you wanted not... to move past it as fast as possible, I bet. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> My opinion on the romance in general changed over the course of thinking about this movie. My initial take on it was, no, this does not work. This is not a proper romance. This is, as you say, creepy and weird. But having thought about it, I realized that it's an unconventional romance, but these two fit together like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Oh. Because Seth is going to stand too close and stare unblinkingly into her eyes, and she is going to answer very personal questions in great detail <laughs> when asked for the very first time by a person she's never met before. <laughs> Yes, they get into a deep philosophical conversation in a dark hallway. In a dark in a, hallway. In a, in, a, in a hospital. He suddenly decides that he's going to make himself visible at the library. And they just walk out of the library together. All the angels in the library move over to watch this. And they all stare from multiple floors. And it, you just see yes. like the mob of black coats staring down at them as they leave the library together. I loved that visual. Once again, questions about angels and their rules. Were they coming to watch because this is forbidden and he's not supposed to be doing that? Right. Or were they coming to watch because they are curious about what's going on? Yeah, there's never any reprimand. Even his friend, Cassiel, never says, like, you're doing a bad thing. It's quite the opposite. They have discussions, Seth and Cassiel, about being seen by people who are not dying or hallucinating. And then later on, they have discussions about falling and becoming mortal themselves. And Cassiel's kind of encourages it. If not encouraging, he doesn't say, no, 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 you, you can't do that. It's like, no, what, what, what's stopping you? Are you going to do it? Yeah. And it, then it's... afterwards, afterwards, he asked, like, what's it like? You know, it's, so there, there is some genuine curiosity on the angel's part about the human experience. That little bit of it, of that, that non-judgmental, like, hey, if you want to do it, do it. I did enjoy that. I thought that was pretty I loved cool. That. that was very original. A couple of things happened, right? 
Seth sort of gives away the fact that he's not human. And then, of course, she's conflicted when she kind of accepts that he's not human because how are they going to be together? Then we have Nathaniel Messenger who senses that Seth is in the room one night and calls out to him. And then, of course, Seth makes himself visible because apparently Seth is really bad at keeping this hidden. <laughs> Nathaniel says, I was one of you. I was a celestial being. Yes. And I turned myself into a human. And you can too. All you have to do is give in. You essentially throw yourself off of something and fall to the ground and you become human. And he says, well, how is that possible? And he says, because they gave us the one thing, free will. It's not exclusive to humans. Angels have it too. And again, there are moments in this film that I'm like, that's pretty cool. All of a sudden, his last name makes perfect sense. He has gone with the tradition of your surname being the job that you had. So, you know, carpenter, cobbler, smith. No, he's Nathaniel Messenger because he used to be a messenger, an angel. I loved that. That was so well done. And then he was like, yeah, and I didn't have a history. I didn't have a job. I had to figure out how to do everything and how to be a person. And I love those little details about him talking about the reality of becoming a human the one thing that he had having been an angel was that he had no fear of heights because he's used to standing on top of high buildings and therefore a job in construction where he can work on high rises that seemed to fit the bill perfectly so seth decides that he wants to be with maggie maggie is tossing and turning between marrying this other doctor and seth doesn't want that and so he decides he goes up to a construction site and he throws himself off the building i'm going to stop you right there because i have a question for you Seth has been pondering this question of whether he wants to do this. He's kind of gone back and forth. He's discussed it with Cassiel. Maggie has a conversation with Nathaniel. She lets him know that, no, I, I know that he's not of this earth. And Nathaniel basically says, he can become human. I want to say he says something along the lines of, but you have to help him make that decision or you make that decision for him or something that implies that she has agency in this. We then get the scene in which she goes to the library, asks to see Seth, Seth appears, and she says, I never want to see you again, because you cannot give me all of these things that the other doctor can. Was she being sincere in that scene, or was she saying that just to push him over the edge, quite literally? I assumed that she played off the fact that he said, you know, essentially, no, it's Seth's choice. Seth can do this if he wants to. I always took it as her saying like, oh, he can, but he's not. So I'm going to move on. But I don't know. It could go that way, too. That's interesting. I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest. I have no answer or opinion on that question. It was, it's one of the ones that was just kind of left unanswered because, as you say, you could take it both ways. Yeah, it could be that she wants to move on and just put Seth behind her. But on the other hand, she is very enthusiastic when he shows up at her cabin at Lake Tahoe. I kind of got the feeling that perhaps that was actually what she wanted to happen. Seth becomes human and then finds Maggie in Lake Tahoe. Of course, we have to have the obligatory sex scene. The most unrealistic sex scene in the history <laughs> of cinema. Why? Because it was more than three seconds long? <laughs> you have a, a being who has existed for, what, potentially thousands of years as an angel? This is the first time he is experiencing the sensation of touch, and that scene goes on, as you say, for more than three seconds. We're not trying to be uh, impolite, but... Even the sensation of touch is new, let alone anything else. 
Then they have a wonderful night together, and the next morning he's taking a shower for seven hours, it seems, and she goes into town to get supplies, and she's riding her bike, and she rides her bike a lot in this film. She rides her bike to work, she rides her bike everywhere, and now she's in Lake Tahoe riding her bike. Steve, it was when she was riding her bike back, and I'm watching it just casually, okay, this is interesting, and then I went, oh my god, I remember, a day after Seth has become a human Maggie riding her bike gets hit by a truck, <laughs> which I don't mean to laugh at. I knew that Maggie dies from the very beginning, having watched it, you know, years and years ago. And I just went through the entirety of the movie going, when does that happen? Is it is it happening yet? This movie is very slow. It is a slow burn. Maggie hits a truck on her bike. The truck did not hit her. She ran into the truck. How on earth was this fatal? I've been mulling this over because my initial thought upon seeing it for a second time was, all right, the dent in her front wheel is significant, but surely there is nothing that sort of impact at the speeds that she might have been traveling. That shouldn't have been fatal, should it? What I interpreted potentially happen was that, yes, she ran into the truck ending up under it, and then the truck kept Mm. going because the truck didn't see her, so the truck potentially could have run over her. Boy, we got real dark. I'm sorry, but it is a major plot point and is one that I just could not wrap my brain around. <laughs> and then the rest of the film is Seth trying to deal with loss. Kudos to Seth. He handles loss and grapples with it in the course of five, ten minutes, and then he's good. It's what happens when you've been an angel for like however thou many thousands of years and you've seen so many people die. You know, maybe you're like cool no, with it. I suppose. I sorry, I don't mean to make light about the end of it because the ultimate message of the film that Seth says is a good one. When Cassiel asks, essentially, do you regret becoming human, having gone through what you have just gone through? And he says to touch her hair once, to feel her her cheeks once, or you know what have you, that was worth an eternity. That that was worth giving up immortality for, just that that single night that we had together. I liked that. We're gonna stop real quick and lighten the mood by talking about the music of this film. The soundtrack of City of Angels was the seventh highest selling album of nineteen ninety eight. It has all kinds of people on this soundtrack. U2, Paula Cole, Peter Gabriel, Sarah McLaughlin, among others. The the um (laughs) (laughs) what I'm sorry. It was the Sarah McLaughlin song that they chose. It made perfect sense. I couldn't help but giggle because as soon as I heard it, I started picturing, was it dogs? Dogs. Dogs and cats. I think it's, if you guys remember how they had that commercial for dogs and animals in shelters and that years ago when they started using a Sarah McLaughlin song, I think this predates that. Which makes sense for the film, but if you go and let the dog shelter people use it, then that's all the rest of us are ever going to think about. Yep. And then it had two singles, two singles connected to it. Um, oh. During the wonderful scene before Maggie's death, we hear Alanis Morissette singing Uninvited, very haunting piece of music that I've always liked. I've always liked that song. Uh, actually got nominated for multiple Grammys, won two of them. Cool. Uh, and it was the first thing she actually released after Jagged Little Pill, for those of oh. you uh, music lovers out there. The other one was Goo Goo Dolls did a very famous song, one of their most famous songs, which is called Iris, which they wrote for this movie. If you listen to the lyrics of Iris, it's essentially from the point of view of Seth. Okay. Both of these singles went on to be number one hits. The reviews for this film were sort of mixed. There were some good ones and some less good ones. 
Roger Hurlbert uh, with the Sun Sentinel praised the acting and the directing and the profound feelings that the film brings about. Roger Ebert gave the film three stars, felt it was a little more of a formula story than the original had been. New York Times' Stephen Holden found it to have a lot of romantic cliches and found Nicolas Cage to resemble a serial killer more than an angel. He's not wrong. <laughs> Michael O'Sullivan, Washington Post. A mawkish debasement of its source material. When will Hollywood learn to leave well enough alone? What do we think about this film? What are your thoughts on City of Angels? I'm sorry to say I did not like it. But as with a lot of films that I have watched that we have discussed that I did not particularly care for, there are some really good pieces in the overall picture, in the overall jigsaw puzzle. There are some outstanding parts. I particularly loved when Maggie is trying to figure out what Seth's deal is, and she starts putting together these different clues. The fact that he called her Maggie and said, oh, it's on your name tag, and then later she looks at her name tag, her first name's not on it, it's just her initial. The fact that a Polaroid is taken, and there is a young girl in the Polaroid, but where Seth should be is just this blinding white, it looks like it's been overexposed. I loved the lore of the angels. I was more fascinated by the angels, what they were up to, what their rules are, than the love story. I felt bad because Meg Ryan's character dies, and I didn't really care. I had no emotional investment <laughs> in her character. Again, fascinated by what are the angels doing. Any scene that they are in where it's a crowd scene and there is just this wall of black clad people standing around, I thought that was visually fantastic. But when you kind of put it all together, it didn't really work for me. I have a list of questions, particularly about angels and like, what are the rules? What do things mean? I am convinced that if I went back and watched this movie a second time, I could probably glean some answers to those questions. I have zero desire to go back and watch this again. My biggest complaint with this film is Nicolas Cage. I think that of everyone in the cast, and I still would have issues with the script and how it went, but of everyone in the cast, I think my biggest problem is that Nick Cage is not a believable freaking angel. His choices, how he presented his character. I read somewhere where he said, you know, he wanted to be childlike, right? But it didn't come off that way. No offense, no. Mr. Cage. You came off as kind of creepy. And not warm. And I think that's the problem. If you had given that same role to Andre Brower, he adds Ooh. a natural warmth to everything that he does. Yes. He smiles at a child and you feel it. There is warmth to him as a person, as a performer, that you sort of need. And at no point did I feel Nick Cage was warm with anyone. If anything, he just looked out of place mm -hmm. and he was just staring intently. Even when he was looking at Maggie, he was just staring intently at her. But that was it. There was no warmth. There was something missing from it. And I mean, I know you could say, well, he can't feel. I'm like, yeah, I know. But nothing said I am an angelic being who's here to help you. There's so many actors like you could put in place of him and they would just naturally bring a certain humanity to the role. Mm. And I know they're not human, but we want empathy. We want to connect with them. And I felt like this is the wrong guy for this job. This is not the guy who should have been in this role. I didn't believe him. I think Nick Cage has done beautiful work and I think Nick Cage has done terrible work. And what I saw was a lot of Nick Cage antics, especially when he became human. Then that was all Nick Cage being Nick Cage. I just, I didn't buy it. I didn't buy the love story. I, I didn't buy him. I just didn't buy him. Maggie loved. Meg Ryan rocked it. She Meg Ryan the heck out of it. Um, I, I found her to be very moving. She cares about her patients. She was distraught yes. when she lost one. All of that was good, and strong, and wonderful. 
And I didn't get any of that from Nick Cage. The Angels, I liked the concept, the differences, but at the same time, I still like just fell a little short of where I needed it to go. I needed it to go somewhere, honestly. Mm -hmm. Again, there are great moments. There are great lines. There's a wonderful line at the very end of the film. Seth says something like, am I being punished? And Cassiel kind of laughs and says, you know better than that. That was so well done. And I love that. It's almost like I want to say, let's take this script back. Let's do a couple more rough drafts. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can get there. There is a challenge with this film. How can we fully understand this film if we don't watch the first one? So Steve and I have agreed that we must watch the 1987 film titled Der Himmel über Berlin. And that, folks, is going to be our next episode. It's our first German film on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you will uh, tune in again for the next part of our uh, Angels series. After this, we'll do Angels in the Outfield, Angels <laughs> uh, in America. Any last thoughts, Steve? I think we're at the point where I can just say Auf Wiedersehen. Sit back, it's time to get groovy. Question, do you remember that movie? 